gentlemen welcome to another installment so by surprise we've decided to continue with paul pod and this is our 10th episode and we are live well not live but recorded from new york city and i'm joined with a special guest today who's been very instrumental in eminem's career continuing with the theme of people behind the scenes that have helped make things happen leading up to curtain call two and the players and personnel that have enjoyed the ride along with myself and Eminem. Today, we have the illustrious Dennis Dennehy. Now, for those of you that don't know who Dennis is, which may be some of you, the super fans will probably know, but Dennis by trade is a publicist and a marketer. He's been involved with Eminem's career for how many years now, Dennis? It will be 24 years in May. 24 May, May long, 99. 24 long, sad years <laughs> on board with Eminem is Dennis Dennehy running us all ragged behind the scenes on the publicity side and eventually developed into being on the marketing side. I look at this episode for us today, Dennis, because of what we do together as sort of like a recap or wrap up show. Like, you know how how Gary does it for Howard Stern and they do a wrap up show every day. So so for us today, this is our wrap up show for Eminem for this year. <laughs> and And obviously it includes a lot more than this year because of how many things went on this year that pertain to M's career, right? And the list is long, and a lot of it was just by coincidence and happenstance. And because of what was occurring, we decided to capitalize on it in terms of wrapping it up in a bow with this Greatest Hits project. I was about to say that, wrapping up 2022 with a bow. That's right. So, Dennis, explain to us in, in layman's terms what a publicist does because i'm sure there's plenty of people listening who maybe aren't sure or have an idea but they're not exactly 100 percent certain maybe you can put it into terms that everybody can relate to yeah well first of all paul thanks for having me it's an honor to be here and of course an honor to work alongside you and the team low these past 23 years some of us not uh, not some of us selective. most of us it's a selective yeah I, i'm not gonna you know name let's names. keep it real secondly thanks for asking what a publicist does rather than what i do because it makes it more much more easy to describe what happens generally rather than what you know i'm supposed to do on a day-to-day -day basis sure so i've worked in in music music publicity and com communications as they call it into marketing for my entire career but basically what we do is develop the artist's media profile how people see them as they're reflected in the media to solicit press develop a media strategy around an artist everything from 
television, through print, when print mattered, through online media, critics, editors, television bookers, you know, everything from, let's I, like I always say when I give the pitch to somebody, everything from, you know, Saturday Night Live and the Grammys all the way to, you know, college journalists and, you know, right. blog writers, everything in between. Right. And so that that goes for, like you said, print media, everything from daily newspapers, New York Times, L.A. Times, Wall Street Journal to monthly periodicals, Rolling Stone, Spin when it was around, Double XL to daily television, news programs, morning shows, radio morning shows sometimes. Award shows, uh, yeah. Award shows, late night television, Saturday Night Live, all of it. All of it. Everything that an artist does with respect to the media, a publicist should be involved in. Right. Anytime somebody interacts with an artist through the media, that's our job to to garner that coverage, but more importantly, to guide it and shape it as the artist's career, you know, goes. Right. So when it comes to Eminem specifically, first of all, what what is your earliest memory of getting involved with us and, huh. and how did it how did it land on your on your doorstep, so to speak? How did how did we come into your life? I, I just started at Interscope in January of 99. I was previously working at Geffen Records in the 90s and I'd been there for three or four months. Lori Earle, who was my one of my mentors, my boss at the time at Interscope, said to me, we'd like you to jump into the Eminem project. I was excited. I, I love the music. I hadn't met any of you yet, but I was excited because first of all, I thought it would be a great fit. You know, and so I remember coming to meet you in New York in 99. It was probably around, must have been around April or so, April 99. And we had a meeting, I think it was when you were working out of Theo's office, right? Theo Settlemeyer's office. Was that where you were uh, at the time? Yeah, probably it, in 99, we would have been down on Lafayette Street above the Supreme store. Right. So, so yeah, I was either in... in in the law firm still or had moved upstairs into our own office but it was either way it was the same building yeah so i got the call to to meet with you you and i i think hit it off nicely and you said okay i'm coming to la with marshall next month and if he's got some time i'd like you guys to meet so you were in town he was working on marshall mathers lp and You called me and you said, because I'll, I'll never forget this. You said, hey, listen, if it's okay for you to come by the studio, I'll call and let you know. If you don't hear from me by like nine o'clock, that means he's busy working. Don't come by tonight. So right. Great. Nine and o'clock comes and goes. Did you hear from me? No. No. I st- so I started having a couple of cocktails, nine o'clock. I thought, oh, I don't have to be on my game. I'm not going to worry about it. 10 o'clock comes and you call and you say, can you make it over here tonight? You guys were over in Burbank. And Perfect. I was like, ah, oh, great. I'm a little loose. You know, you want to make a good first impression. Little did I know that w- that was probably the right first impression to be made at the time. Back then, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so I come over to come over to the studio, and you come out and talk to me. You said, okay, he's working right now. I'll have you come in in a minute where there's a break in the action. You didn't tell okay. me who he was working with. So. Okay. Want- and, and at that time, you, your your understanding was that we were looking for somebody different to 
to head his publicity efforts. Correct. I wanted to figure out the right way to approach that conversation. But yes. And we had we had been working with somebody else prior to that, a third party outside firm. Right. And Jimmy, I think, also wanted to change. And right. And I was excited because I it was I knew, you know, what you guys meant to him at the time and to the company. And there was so much excitement around the project. So and around Eminem, of course. So you say, okay, he's ready for you. Come on in. And I, and I go into the studio. The music is playing at a level. I believe my brain is like still rattling today from how loud it was. And it was Marshall and Dre working on something together. I didn't know Dre was going to be there. So yeah. Dre has a tendency to listen to music in the studio very loud. Oh my God. I mean, I, I can still. It's extraordinarily loud. And, and I used to. I used to plug my ears with my fingers back before, you know, I would I would bring in just, you know, stuff to put in my ears, you know, so I had earplugs later, but they would make fun of me, you know, basically saying I was I was being a wimp for plugging my ears. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm being smart because I'm going to be able to hear 20 years from now and you guys are going to have hearing problems. So, yeah, and I continued to do that and still do because the this ear splitting level of decibels that comes out of those speakers is is it literally painful. I, I, I was in there and I, I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, is this some test I'm being put through? <laughs> do, do oh I, no, that was normal no, shit. I, I but I had no idea. I I'd never heard anything that loud in my life. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of standing. You walk in and you're like Hey, what's up? I'm Dennis. I'm here to see Eminem. <laughs> it, it wasn't even that yet. The it music was... scratched, goes, and everybody looks at you. <laughs> right. And Dre's like, who the fuck's this guy? It, yeah, it stops in the middle of the sentence. No, so, so you know, the funny thing is, so the music stops. I'm, I'm dizzy from how loud it is. And you introduce me to, to Marshall. Marshall just kind of says hello. Then yeah. Dre turns around. And, you know, I mean, keep in mind, I was excited to meet all you guys, but walking into a room where Dr. Dre is, especially not expecting Dr. Dre to be in that room, is yeah. one of the more exciting and simultaneously intimidating experiences of your life. And he yeah. turns to me and he said, you the new guy? And I said, yep. And he said, you the shit? And I said, what? And he leaned over and he said, are you the shit? Yeah. And I just, I don't know what to say. So I said, I'm trying to be. And and he laughed and he's like, all right, I like this guy. <laughs> that was it. Interview over, I guess. Yeah. I mean, what do you say, right? Are you the shit? <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, exactly. let's see. Somewhat I think I am. I want to be. I think trying to be was a good answer because if you were like, hell yeah, I'm the shit. He'd be like, oh, this, this dude. Right. He's full of himself. Right. And you can't say no. Because then you're basically saying you're you're not good yeah, enough yeah. for the job. So I think that was the right answer. And you're definitely not saying to Dre, hey, here's my resume. Hey, Dr. No, he Dre, here's what I've done. <laughs> right? yeah, no, he doesn't want it. I mean, if you listen, if you told him who you'd worked with, he would have respected yeah, that. Yeah, I yeah. But but it was just it, I was so put off guard and, and keep in mind, I had, you know, a couple of cocktails in me at that point. So the whole thing right. was like surreal. I, I, I walked yeah, you out You probably weren't the only person with a, like you mentioned with a couple of cocktails. No, in definitely them. not. But I didn't know it was the first time I met you all. Right. There, little right. did I know there'd be many cocktails in our futures. Yeah. 
Many Cocktails in Our Futures. That's the title of your book. <laughs> and little did you know, that would lead to the next 23, 22 years. I, yeah, I was thinking about that today. Chaos in your life. <laughs> Tears. And professional, professional insanity. Uh, right? Ongoing professional insanity. Right. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> professional insanity, which continues today. So that's how you guys met. And that's when you you guys met. And we were in the process, as you mentioned, of recording the Marshall Mathers LP, which, you know, many, many people to consider to be Marshall's sort of seminal album. And, you know, you were along for that ride and, and, and for that launch. And now prior to this, there was, you know, some levels of controversy surrounding Marshall and his music, but not like it became following the release of the Marshall Mathers LP, right? No, it was, you know, it's still, it was, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life. My other, another one of my mentors, Bryn Bridenthal, who was my boss at Geffen Records when I was there, she worked Guns N' Roses at, you know, the height of Guns N' Roses mania. And right. she said to me, she said, you know, enjoy this ride. You, you, you only maybe get one of them in your career. And it went, I mean, you know, enjoy is, I think, meant both genuinely and sarcastically because things exploded to such a crazy level. Yeah, but, it wasn't always all fun and games. No, no, not at all. Right. But all, always interesting and always exciting and always engaging. Always. Um, so <laughs> when when the album gets released, when, when the Marshall Mathers LP gets released, you know, it, it, was, it was mired in controversy. You know, a, a lot of people remember that. Some people don't remember how serious it was, right? Because, you know, controversy then compared to controversy now, living in this sort of post-Trump era is a whole different thing, Yeah. right? And, you, you know, people do things now to, you know, in order to provoke the public that are so far beyond what people were doing back then. But, but you know, for the time... It was as controversial and as big of a news as, as big of news as anything, you know, that that sort of, you know, happening in, in the post-Trump world. He was the sort of center of attention and, and the poster boy for controversy at the time. Right. There, especially for those. What would what do you call it? Three to four years from from the, the Marshall Mathers LP through Eight Mile Eminem show. I mean, especially on the, on the launch of the Marshall Mathers LP, it was the, I would say, without hesitation, probably the biggest global pop culture bleeding into news story of, of the day. Wouldn't you agree? Right. I mean, it was just... Yeah, yeah, but and not always in a good way, though. No, right? no, no, I don't know. Yeah, because there, there was, you know, they, they always say that, you know, all publicity is good publicity, I would beg to differ. You know, there's certain there's certain publicity that that I think that 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 we faced at the time, which was not necessarily good publicity. But regardless, you know, it's what was happening. And this is in a pre-internet, uh, well, not pre-internet, but pre pre you know iPhone world, right? Pre TMZ world. 
But you could uh, call it a pre-internet world in a lot of ways. Because, because, but it was, and you're right. There were people. There were people focused, daily focused on ending on ending his career. I had it woke up with a daily focus on how do I end Eminem's career? How do we remove him from from the stage? Yeah, and your job was to try to fight that narrative in in a in 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 big part, right? Like that. That's what you were brought on partially to do yeah and how the fuck do you do that you know it's this weird almost second sense of knowing where the battles are to fight you know how do we appease glad at the time because you remember glad was calling they were calling me every day wanting to know what we're going to do about this how do we properly appease glad how do we dip into the conversation with regard to access to Marshall without overexposure, which was probably our, the, the thing we, I would say, navigated best and continue to navigate best. You know, it's, it's, it's using the mystique and it's using the, the weight of his words when he steps up to make a statement on something. People yeah. listen because he doesn't make that often, right? Beyond that, it's knowing, okay, you're reading, okay, this is the daily noise that this is going to peter out. These are the important right. things in front of us, like glad, like the music business, like, like the people in the industry, like the billboard thing at the time, right? Yeah, particular writers or the editor of billboard at the time that, that Timothy White, who right. passed away, was, was after him. There was a lot of people that were after Front him. Front page editorial and billboard at the time. Yeah. And in in a general sense, like, you know, I I just I think of the ways that we responded to all that stuff. And I just remember a lot of strategizing a lot, a lot of strategizing and a lot of thought and sometimes overthought (laughs) on how to respond to things, whether to respond to things, where to respond to them, too. And I think that one thing that, that you and I always try to figure out is is there a magic bullet for this problem? Right? right. Is there is there a a way to you know shut some of the people up to make people realize that the narratives sometimes that are being created are either untrue or partially true or incorrect or need to be altered? And, you know, you just you you look at all of those things in the landscape and you try to come up with a strategy. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, we were so in lockstep about every single decision to your point, probably to and 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 overthinking a degree on where he would. show. I mean, do you remember the, the with the hour long conversation, probably more than an hour? That we had at the studio about whether he should be on the Grammys that year when he was nominated, whether he should perform because, the, I mean, it's it's crazy to think about now, but the lyric you think I give a fuck about a Grammy, right? And we're like, how, okay, so how do you how do those two things coexist? Right? How do you say that in a song and then show up and do the show? Right. And the other thing I think we've always been good about is, and I would say not to pat ourselves in the back, great about is turning the narrative on its head at, at exactly the right time. Right. Well, that, I think, is part and parcel with the whole magic bullet approach. Right. And and 
you know, we we definitely had one. Right. I mean, you could argue that there was more, but there's there's certainly one you can point to, which was the moment I think that, you know, it, it, we we collectively came up with a strategy that really worked. Right. Elton John, for sure. The moment that I'm talking about is when Marshall performed at the Grammys yep. in 2000. What was it? That would be 2002. Two, maybe, right? Yeah. And he basically, you know, it, 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 there was a lot of people saying that he was homophobic. And the truth of the matter, and you and I know this very well, is he's very far from it, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, shockingly far for people who thought that's what he was. Right. And And what he was doing, though was kicking back dirt at people who he thought were slinging dirt at him. Correct. And much like the song, Whatever You Say I Am, okay, you're going to say I'm homophobic, I'll show you homophobic. Right. right. And he was doing it to press people's buttons. And it worked. Right or wrong, it's what I he know. was doing. Right. And And he was trying to get them engaged and trying to get them worked up and trying to get them to respond to him. And, you know, his his that's the game that he was running at the time. So in order to finally say, hey, listen, I'm not these things you say that I am, actually. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to perform at the Grammys with one of the biggest gay icons that's ever existed, yeah. Elton John. Who also stood up for him at a super critical juncture. In yeah, that, in well, that I think, dialogue. and I think that's part of the reason that we we decided to reach out to him and and ask him to do it. But that that move, that strategy, sort of completely ended that whole conversation. Dead. I mean, you know, it 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 popped up once in a while, and you'd have to deal with it once in a while. Yeah, Marshall was a little reckless, and you know, right, used words that he shouldn't have used, you know, later on. But 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 it really sort of was was the thing that that stopped that train from running at the speed that it was running correct i right. mean it, people forget th there there were protests the grammys there are people people outside oh yeah protest there's people signs. picketing outside of the of the grammys there's people protesting outside of interscope and as um, soon as they came out with with their arms together at the, i mean that was that changed changed it in a millisecond right everything changed after that Everything changed. So, you know, things like that are what, what you're a part of and making those those decisions and those strategies. And, you know, that's obviously an, an extreme and very important example. But, right. you know, there's there's little moments like that throughout Marshall's career. I mean, the, um, I was thinking this morning about the 60 Minutes interview and how it took us 10 years to do that. Right. From the time they asked, from the time it aired, probably 10 years. And it paid off by waiting 10 years. It just shows you that the power of when to say yes, when to say no, the, the, I wouldn't call it a trick, but the, the letting things breathe and letting an artist's career and, and, and artists entry point into the media develop over time and figure out the right time to do that. When he went on at that time in his career on 60 minutes, I remember him saying this. So sitting with, a couple of my friends watching it and when he talked about his girls and he said about his father leaving him, he said, 
I would go to the end of the end of the earth to find my kids. I still like I still and everybody in the room was just kind of like, you know, we 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 were really and he was really great about releasing those looks into who he is at exactly the right time. Yeah, I mean that. Yes, that and that and that moment and moments like that are. You know, we can't take credit for that. I right? said that, that's him. That yeah, that's that's Marshall and and his his genius and you know him being so authentic and genuine in who he is. Um, but you know, deciding that that's the right time to do that interview and you know putting all the safeguards and rails up to make it go the way that it was, you know, the way that it went, you know, is the kind of stuff that you do. Yeah, it's so you and I knowing and being locked up with him on when to do something, when not to do it, and and we. We've done this a few times, pushing him to do the things that maybe he's not all the way there on because we know he's going to probably enjoy it in the long run and it will be beneficial in the long run. Yeah, or it's the right thing to do, whether he enjoys it or sometimes your medicine doesn't taste good going down. (laughs) That's true. Let's talk about, you know, this this past year, right? Because we got all that out of the way. We got some of the early stuff out of the way. We found out who you are and what you do. But, you know, this year, 2022, not necessarily by design, but by circumstance was a big, I call it a big legacy year. Yep. Right. So, you know, there's there's a long list of things that we did and, you know, a lot of anniversaries that happened to occur and also coincide with with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. So, you know, the year starts off with a huge bang, right? And it's it's Dr. Dre and friends at the Super Bowl in February. Which, you know, a, that was if if that was the only thing we did this year, that would have been huge. Yeah, that would have been an atom bomb in and of itself. Right. So, but that's how we start the year. So, starting out with a bang, so to speak, literally um, we, we, we had, you know, Marshall perform with Dre and, you know, 50 and, and Mary J. Blige and, and Snoop and, you know, Kendrick, Kendrick and, and Anderson pocket at, yep. at the Super Bowl, And, you know, that leading up to that point, so much went into it. Right. And the decision to do the Super Bowl started with Dr. Dre Right. Because it was it was, you know, really his show, him and Snoop, really, because it was in their backyard. And Dre gets the call and the offer to do the show. And the first thing that happened that I remember was he was thinking about whether he should do it. Yep. And it wasn't, hey, I'm doing it. Do you, you know, Marshall, are you are you want to do it with me? It was, hey, they came to me. Jimmy came to me with, you know, Jay-Z and Rock Nation and the NFL has endorsed this and they want me to do the Super Bowl. Should I do it? Right. He was trying to figure out, he was trying to get his head around what it would look like, right? I think it, it's not just what it would look like, but what would make it, you know, better than anything else right. ever. Right. Because Dre is always trying to set the bar higher and higher and higher. Yep. And he's always, if he's not trying out to everybody else, he's not trying out to himself. Correct. Right. Yep. And he looks at everything that he does, whether it's a TV performance, an album, a song, whatever, 
he looks at it as something that has to be just as good as it can possibly be. And it has to be, you know, if not mind blowing, it has to change the course of history or music. Like that's really how he thinks. Yeah. It's summit it's to summit. What right? makes, yeah. And a part, part of what makes him, you know, who he is. So he decides obviously to do it, but there was a lot of discussion about it. And I remember talking to him about it and he asked me what I thought. And my reaction to it was immediate. I said, well, you have to do it. Right. You have to. It's 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 in L.A. It's the Super Bowl. I don't know if there's going to be another chance to do this. And it's amazing that they're going to give you the stage, you know, in front of the world and that audience to put this show together. Right. And this is an opportunity that I don't see how you can pass up. Right. And I'm not saying that, you know, he took my advice and decided to do it, but he threw, you know, a hundred things back at me playing devil's advocate of why maybe he shouldn't do it. Right. Finally, he decides he's going to, obviously. And, you know, he reaches out and asks Marshall to do it. And the thing about Marshall and, and Dre is if one of them asks the other to do something within reason, they don't say no. No. Really. Right? So there wasn't a whole lot of deliberation on Marshall's side. It was, if you need me to do it, I'm going to do it. But he didn't necessarily want to do it. <laughs> right? I would say that's true, yeah. Right. It because was disgust enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it, but in, and he's, he's talked about some of them. But regardless, they decide to do it. They do an amazing job. Tell me about you know, your role in that and, and how you saw it all unfolding and what, what was what was going through your mind as that process was happening? Well, you know, I mean, the, I'm along to make sure that, that, that in that regard, right, when it comes to that, like to make sure that, that, that all, and let's be honest, it's the Super Bowl. There's not, there's not a ton of heavy lifting around the Super Bowl when it comes to media. But it's working with all the, the publicists on the various teams to make sure that the message is aligned, that we're all moving in the same direction, and that we come out of this with the right narrative around it. But the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl halftime show are so great at what they do, and they're so great about keeping you plugged in. We just want to make sure the right narrative is there for when you come out of it and how it's properly digested by the media. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, I think the, the one thing that we were focused on is, you know, monitoring what the media was saying leading up to it, because, you know, it, it was, it was a very ripe opportunity for somebody in the media to take a shot at these artists and say, Hey, you know, this guy's misogynistic, this guy's homophobic, this guy raps about killing people. Why are they on stage at the Super Bowl? Right. And, and I think there were a couple of those, right, that we that we had to deal with. But, you know, the funny thing is, and I guess this is, you know, hindsight being 2020, the overall reaction. And I think this speaks to not only the collective power of the artist, but Dre's legacy. I mean, 
cut to things you couldn't have imagined even five years ago, 10 years ago. And that's no disrespect to the NFL. But did any of us ever think that day would come when you'd see those artists up there at halftime? No. No, probably not. Not in a million years. It was such a potential opportunity for landmines to go off leading up to it. Of course. Like, why are you having these guys up there? The NFL should be ashamed of themselves. How are you going to represent, you know, the quote unquote, the shield with this set of artists? And I think, you know, we moved it away from what their past was to what their future was, right? Which is the kind of conversation I'm always having with the media on the back on background. When they're calling me, I'm saying, if you're going to hold somebody to something they did 25 years ago, their lyrics, if you're going to hold Dr. Dre to whatever, you know what I mean? Like, then, then you're not you're not giving artists a chance to grow. And really what our job is on the music side, in the music industry, is you you give artists the platform to move through mistakes they make when they're young or, you know, certain decisions they make when they're young, right or wrong. And if you take away that platform, then what good are we? What are we here for? What are we doing? Because we're dealing with artists that are professionals of what they do and and they're icons of what they do. Sno- yeah. Snoop and Dre alone, the history of West Coast rap, the first Super Bowl in SoFi Stadium, the way he staged it made it all the more relevant to why everybody was in that building. The way sure. he contextualized West Coast culture into that performance, I yeah. think, which left everybody... Which is the right thing to do, and, and he did it in a masterful way. Yeah. But I think one thing to point out, you know, about these guys is, you know, they're, they're adults now, right? Right. That's, and everybody on that stage, and it's not like... You know, Kendrick is is, you know, the the younger of of the group, obviously youngest of the group. But, you know, he's he's not a 20 year old kid anymore. So, you know, these were grown ups. These are people who have raised children. Right. They have their own families. They have their own businesses. They're successful. You know, they they've gotten for the most part, they've gotten through their bullshit. Yeah. Right. And, And they're at a stage of their lives where, you know, dare I say they're they're mature. Right. And like you said, you have to give people an opportunity to, you know, I I don't want to say redeem themselves, but show that things are different. Yep. Right. So, you know, you're not you're not going to put yourself at risk by putting Dr. Dre up there at at this point of his life, because, you know, he just he's just not that guy that's going to do you know, what some people were, you know, may have been concerned about what would happen or or the reaction that would happen. And it, as it turned out, people were very happy that those guys performed and they were thrilled with the show and, and, and the results of it, I think, for the most part. I didn't hear a whole lot of negative feedback, if no, any at all. I don't think there was any at all. And, you know, to your point, what you were saying earlier, Dre didn't have to do it. Dre was going back and forth on whether he wanted to do it. So the one thing I think anybody who's even a passive fan of Dr. Dre knows that if he does something, it's going to be amazing. If Marshall does something, it's going to be amazing. If Snoop, Kendrick, Mary, they, they like these aren't people that show up just at every time they're asked to perform. They, they're very selective in what they do because they're so good at it. And they understand the importance of for the music and I think and 
hip hop culture overall as to why they're there at that moment, right? What it means. Yeah, I mean, right. And and it all it all just sort of came together. So, you know, hats off to, you know, Dr. Dre obviously yes. for for putting together, you know, such a such a incredible experience and masterful show and you know, one of the greatest Super Bowl performances, if not the greatest halftime performance shows of all time. And it was it was a reminder for those that knew and for those that didn't, they were exposed to something that they probably weren't anticipating. And there's a whole new generation of, of fans now. Yep. And I think that's that may be, you know, the greatest part about it. It's just mind blowing. <laughs> So the Super Bowl obviously happens, yep. but then it happens to be the anniversary for a couple of very important things. And first, it's the 20th anniversary, 2022 marks the 20th anniversary of the Eminem show, right. Marshall's third album on Interscope. And obviously a very successful album, very big album. And we wanted to honor that by doing a, a 20th anniversary edition of it. So, you know, we re we released that and we also had the 20th anniversary of 8 Mile. Yep. This this year as well. So, going back to those moments because those albums were released in in the same year obviously. Yeah. One was in the spring and the other was in the fall, which is kind of mind-blowing to think about that, you know, two things that were that massive came out in the same year, being this, you know, the movie and the soundtrack for for 8 Mile, which you know, some people don't know and, and, and some don't remember, but had the number one movie, the number one single and the number one album. Yep. On the same, same week. Right. Which is basically unheard of. No. And then, you know, the, the, the Eminem show, number one album earlier in the year. So the, the thing that I remember most about the Eminem show was the the leak that happened. Yep. So the album was originally scheduled for one day in May and it leaked early. This is back when albums would leak and, and people would freak out and, you know, you would be playing catch up, trying to get the record out quicker sometimes. What do you remember about that? You know, we we couldn't send it to anybody. Right. I mean, nobody had the music. And back then, you know, that was the first probably couple of years of for my job. This is crazy and hard to believe, but. You know, when I worked at Geffen Records, I worked on the Nirvana in Utero album. And we sent those cassettes out to the press a month, two months, sometimes for a different artist, three months before the album came out. Because it was, and it was cassettes at the time. Um, all the major music magazines were long lead time. You had to get things into them three months ahead if you wanted space held for features or reviews or covers or whatever for when the album came out. And you think about that now, it, you can't even process the fact that people did that. I mean, apart from the piracy issue, then, you know, now albums get finished 48 hours before they come out, maybe the morning before, but... Yeah, you don't have to hand them in with such a long lead time. No. Back then, you'd have to hand an album in a month before it came out because they would have to press up the physical copies. Right. So we would get, you know, we were already nervous about about the leaks anyway. So music wasn't going out to anybody. Journalists didn't get it till the day it came out, if they got it even then. Because no, and if, if there was an opportunity for somebody to hear it, we would send somebody to play it for them. Yeah, I'd, yeah, Or I'd they would sit, have to come to a studio and hear it. Right. I'd sit there with a CD, which 
just made me nervous to carry around in and of itself. Yeah, um, it, it got so crazy to the point where there was like, <laughs> you didn't you know, want the music. They, you didn't want the music because you didn't want the responsibility. <laughs> but it, you, what what often would happen is, and this was I think Jimmy Jimmy Iovine's special. He would say, "We're gonna take a CD player." I'll spare you the, the, the imitation. We're going to take a CD <laughs> player, like a portable like disc man, yep. right? And we're going to put the disc in it and we're going to glue it shut. Yep. So that nobody can take the disc out. Right. And it'll forever be in there. And as long as you don't lose the disc player, then nobody can steal the music. So go take this and, you know, play it for the people that we need to play it for. It got that crazy. It was, I mean... It it was it was nuts. It was nuts. It's like I said. I never want. I never wanted the responsibility. You know how many albums you go. It, people just. You didn't want to know. You didn't want to have it in a bag, because what if you just happen to leave the bag behind no, for an hour? It was, it's the stuff that would keep you up at night. Oh and my God. you know, it, it it often like you know there there was there was times where things were left places and everybody went nuts trying to get them back. And, <laughs> and you know, thankfully most of the times we did, but so, so the music leaks out. What do you remember happening after that? It's this weird time. As soon as the record leaves the label's hands to go to production or from production, I guess it really is from production to just dis- when it gets distributed to the stores, but you're kind of counting the minutes. You're just, you're on pins and needles for as soon as that last minute you can hold on to the music. You hold on until that moment. Then you have to let it go so it can be going to production and you're just waiting. Right. You're waiting to get the call. So we're all sitting around in one you of the- You know what's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. One, a matter of when. So we're all sitting around. It's a Friday meeting. Jim used to have a Friday meeting at Interscope. It went from 10 to 1 every Friday. And we're sitting there and- the word came in, you know, Berman got the call that the record had leaked. And right. we immediately, you know, you go to into what what are we going to do? And how quickly do we react? How do we react? You know, you, you have to keep in mind, right, that that if you change your release date at that point because you ha- because you're dealing with piracy, there's a lot of moving parts. You're upending your whole marketing campaign. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. You're up any your whole campaign. And and in this regard, what I remember happening, I think, is we decided to move the release date back a week. Yep. Sooner, right? Yeah. I think it was 10 to, days, to, wasn't to combat, it? To combat the leak. Well, it ended up being 10 days, but yeah. initially it was a week. Right. And at that time, albums came out on Tuesdays. Yeah. Right? So it was, say it was Tuesday, May 30th initially. And then I'm making up these dates. I don't know if they're, if they're correct. They're close. And then we said, okay, let's move it a week earlier. It's going to be Tuesday, May 23rd. Yep. And that weekend, prior to the 23rd, we were doing HF Festival. Yep. And getting a call from Berman. And this was on a Friday, right? And our show was, I think, Saturday. And we were doing the sound check on Friday. The album was coming out Tuesday. And he said, Paul... We got to make a call here. I'm not sure what you want to do, but we got a problem. And I'm like, okay, I already know the album had leaked. I already knew we moved it earlier. What's the problem now? So when albums would come out on Tuesdays, they would be sent to the record stores on Friday. Yep. So they had the weekend to stock them, right? The retailers were taking the record out of the boxes, some of them, on the Friday and putting them on the shelves, saying... 
this record's being bootlegged. We're losing our sales. We're putting this on the shelves. We don't care if you've got a problem with it. We're not going to lose these sales. Right? So some of them were doing it. So the problem was, what do we do? Do we tell everybody to go for it? Or do we try to hold as many people as we can to Tuesday? Right. Right? And the decision was made that we were going to go for it. And the only problem with that is sales week would have it would have ruined the sales week right because the sales week went from tuesday to sunday yep so right? we, we basically cut it into a third yes cut it by two thirds so it would only you would only have friday saturday and sunday to report because you also forget this what we're combating at least from my perspective at the time in the press are the haters and the people who just want to write the shit they want to write, like we were talking about earlier, the people who, made, who still at that point were like, even even if the Elton thing, there was still enough controversy, enough people out there trying to kind of squash him, that you worried that then the headline is Eminem sells X amount of records and they don't do the, you know, they don't do the real reporting on it was a three-day week. You worry that... All of a sudden, people start reporting. Oh, maybe it's over. Oh, maybe it's done. You know, yeah. it's 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 it was legitimate concern about about. Not everybody's going to say, "Hey, this is just you know two three days of sales." Right. This is you know this is a a bad number for his first. Somebody week would love on. to I mean, ride that headline. Is Eminem over at the time? You know what I right. mean. Right. So instead, though, the album did so well, <laughs> and so many people followed suit that it sold you know over a million copies. Yeah. In those three days. Three days. Yeah. And at that time, you have to write up a press release, print up that press release about the new date, fax it to everybody. And, you know, Jimmy was like, I need everybody on the planet knowing the state moved. Like, you have to, like, that's like, I mean, just for me, that's 16 hours of work right there on one thing for the next day and a half of your life. Right. And you couldn't, you, you were sending emails, but it wasn't necessarily the primary form no, of communication. You're at faxing that time. at the time. You're faxing it everywhere. Faxing and, you're, and you're on the phone. Calling Out everybody. Presses, Eminem album date moves. Right. Now go pay attention to this and write about it over the weekend. <laughs> I need Good this luck. out there tonight. Access Hollywood, put it on the air tonight. And and they did. Yeah, they sure did. So it, the, the Eminem show, 20th anniversary, 8 Mile 20th anniversary, which we briefly touched on. Yep. Obviously, you know, a very well-received film, you know, Everybody knows the story, loosely based on Marshall's life prior to being famous and that sort of time when an artist is is sort of struggling to find who they are and haven't haven't really gained full acceptance yet and finding a way to sort of believe in yourself and face your challenges. And we put the 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 movie out, we put the soundtrack out, you know, obviously one of Marshall's biggest songs ever, Lose Yourself. And things, you know, it, it the, the thing that I remember always sort of being blown away by at this time of Marshall's career is just when it seemed like things were just about as big and massive as they could be. <laughs> they got bigger. Exponentially. And just sort of dealing with that fact and how to react to it, how to keep everybody's head straight, keep his head straight and stay focused on the task right at hand right was not easy to do no
so the press reaction was good. And I remember you worked really hard to try to set the tone for how the press was going to react to this film. Yep. There was two there was two important writers. One was a film critic and one was a sort of, I think, more of like music cultural guy that were instrumental in setting that tone. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the first we're talking about the Frank Rich New York Times magazine piece. Yeah. And was the other one Hilburn you're thinking yes. about? So mm-hmm. I, I remember this was a really weird position we were in at the time because you're dealing with and I believe if I'm if I'm not mistaken, it was the first week it came out, it was the highest grossing R rated film first week. Second, box, second, second highest second. grossing okay. R rated film of all time, yeah. So it, do you remember, you know, you're in the middle of a conversation with 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 the film studio who's used to junkets and used to the, you know, the readily available star of the movie. Yeah, being it was there. part of their job. You promote the movie. Right. right? So they, and, they didn't have to worry about how it was going to impact the other aspects of what they did because it was all they did. Correct. Right? And I remember that was you on didn't. a call. I had to say that to them. I said, I have to think about his career. And Paul has to think about his career. After, After this, this is done, yeah. he's going to be he's going to be a rapper, and we have to think about what that looks like. And we can't just have him on, you know, no no offense, Good Morning America, but he's not going to walk out on Good Morning America or, or live with Regis and Kelly yeah. to talk about the film. And that was a, that was a, a point of tension. And yeah, I remember and, the mantra that we had that we kept saying is he's not sitting on a couch, right? Exactly. He's not sitting on a couch. He's not going on a late night TV show sitting on a couch. He's not going on a morning show sitting on a couch. He's not going on a press junket sitting on a couch. He's not doing that. He's not going to be in a hotel room with the eight mile thing flat behind him. And God bless Jimmy. Jimmy had our back on it. Yeah. Because I think that- They were incredulous. The studio was like, excuse me? He's not what? What do you mean he's not sitting on a couch? I know. We're like, he's not doing it. It's just not the right thing for him to do. I mean, t- I think we had had that conversation with Curtis Hansen. We're like, no, he's not doing it. He's like, what? W- he needs to. That's what I was, he's not. And yeah, I'm sure got, Curtis Hansen was like, like who the fuck is this dude from the record company? Tell me yeah. he's not going to support my fucking movie. Yeah, um, Curtis was was for those that don't know was the director of Eight Mile. So it was all hands on deck trying to figure out what Eminem was going to do to promote the movie, and it turned out he didn't really have to do a whole lot. He didn't because the movie and the music spoke for itself. And the work that he put in making the movie and making the soundtrack was what he was supposed to do and what he needed to do. And the two things he did do, you know, to backtrack for a sec, I mean, that Frank Rich, that was another one. That, that was the other one I was thinking of when we talked about Elton before. That Frank Rich New York Times cover, Eminem for Everybody, mm-hmm. it, it, again, changed the entire conversation around Eminem. I think you and I did have reservations about it first because... Yeah, because it was it was very sort of, you know, that the New York Times magazine was, you know, kind of academic. Yeah. Right. So it, ne- it wasn't necessarily where you would find his fan base spending their time perusing through the New York Times magazine. But it was necessary because you wanted to reach an audience that you wanted to be on board with this film. And I mean, even setting him up oh. the elevator. With Frank Rich to do the interview, I was a, I was a fucking wreck. I'm sure you were wrecked too. Like we're setting him up to talk to a guy for an hour and a half, and trusting yeah. this is going to work out okay. And and 
Brian, I think Brian Grazer, right, was probably was was really pushed us on that one too, and I think it was the right move. Yeah. And then Hilbert, there, there was a lot of leaps of faith went into this to that geez, to that whole man. that whole thing. I mean, the the I think about this often. The idea, the audacity that we had to think that we could go create a movie for our first time making a movie and basically put his career on the line. Yep. Right? Because if that film sucked, yep. who knows where we would be? Put his career on the line, make a movie which we'd never done before, with people that we've never worked with before, and expect it to just turn out okay. It's a big risk to take. Oh, Jesus. I mean, a big risk to take at the biggest the 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 most probably treacherous moment in his career to take it in terms of two albums later it's a different you're in a different part of your career right at that juncture the riskiest move possible and boy did it pay off he was working on both the Eminem show and the music for the soundtrack at the same time while he was right. filming the we, movie yeah. yeah so we had a studio trailer we had we had his own trailer right ironically when the movie was being filmed in right. the trailer park, right? Yeah. We had his, his trailer. We had his his exercise trailer where he had his gym equipment that he would work out in, obviously. And then we had a studio trailer. Right. And so, so he would bounce back and forth between these three trailers and literally be sitting down or kneeling in between takes, you know, writing stuff on a pad <laughs> or sometimes on his hand when he didn't have a pad. And that's where the you know the poster for the film comes from with the you know the words on his on his hand was because Curtis saw him doing that and he was like hey man what's going on and he's like oh, I just didn't have anything to write I was really literally writing lyrics on my hand so you know Curtis decided that that was pretty remarkable and 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 threw it into the film but you know all of that was going on at the same time I went to visit the set and he asked me if I wanted to hear some music and he gave me a walkman and had lose yourself he played me lose yourself and i said whoa is that the first single for the for the album and he said to me now nah, i think i'm gonna hold it for the movie <laughs> and i remember being like you're gonna fucking hold this back i was like this is the greatest fucking song in the world put it out and he was like now nah, i'm gonna hold it back and boy was i wrong about that like yeah hold it back <laughs> yeah i think you you probably heard the demo version yeah which we released because the the we released recently with the the eight mile twentieth anniversary edition of the of the album, but that version wasn't as focused on the character in the movie, right? Right. And the song and one of the things he did most brilliantly in Lose Yourself is he was drawing parallels between himself and B Rabbit. Yep. Right. And there's often parts of the song which I, I believe were very intentional where you don't know what she's talking about. Yep. Right. So that's the ultimate, you know, version that, that we ended up going with and using for the film. But yeah, I mean, just in incredibly well-received, incredibly commercially successful, critically acclaimed. And there were guys back then, not so, not as much now, but there were guys back then like Frank Rich and like Bob Hilburn that other journalists looked to to take their cues. Yep. And they they set the tone for for others to follow. And yes, obviously, thank you to to Bob for that. Yep. So I was going to say the thing about Eight Mile that I realized recently when I sat and watched it with my kids is 
it really stands the test of time. Yeah. And and it stands up a, as a film and not just a moment, which I think is is really remarkable and obviously a testament to, you know, Scott Silver who wrote the film and and Curtis who directed the movie and obviously to Marshall himself as well. So if you haven't seen it, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> If, if for some reason you haven't seen it, please do. Eight Mile, available so, on all streaming platforms. Yeah, so Eight Mile 20th anniversary. We also, because of these anniversaries, because of the Super Bowl, and because of what we saw coming down the road with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we decided to release the Curtain Call 2 Greatest Hits Project, yep. which everybody knows about, which we've been talking about on this podcast, yep. and which is, you know, the reason that, that we're here, you know, and... That was a strategic move in the sense that he knew all these other things were going on. This was going to be a time to reflect on Marshall's career. So let's give him a place to reflect. Yep. Right. And at the time we released it, I don't believe that Marshall's induction to the Hall of Fame was announced yet. Maybe it was, but certainly not at the time we were planning it. Right. And when we first announced it. So we couldn't really say hey, it's a big legacy year and this is, you know, part of the reason we're doing this. But I hopefully it all makes sense to everybody now. And, you know, we the only press we did around that, I believe, was the the XXL cover. Just the right. X, yeah. The one he wrote. He, in, so in so the XXL magazine, double XL, it happens to be their 20th anniversary as well. Yep. Right? Nice time. So so that really lined up, you know, talking about all the timing. And they came to us and said, hey, there's nobody else we want to do this with. We need to do our 20th anniversary issue with Marshall. You know, he sat down, started started talking through with Vanessa how it was going to flow. And I think that we've both kind of agreed as, as time goes on in a in an Eminem press campaign that less tends to be more. And yeah, there's just there's not a reason to do the sort of things that you needed to do back in the day. And the Internet has changed right. and, you know, people's phones have changed so much about how we approach marketing promotion and publicity everything right? gets excerpted in every other place and you yeah know. and you can control your narrative better because you you have your own platform right and we didn't have that before there wasn't really a soapbox to stand on you know hello shade 45 right like <laughs> we, we didn't have that stuff back then so you know leading up to something like this you've got your social media you've got your own radio station why are you going to put yourself in a situation to, you know, potentially be be at risk or exposed when you don't have to. And, you know, there's certain times where it makes sense to take the risk. Right. And, and there's certain times where it doesn't. But, you know, working with Vanessa and Double XL at this stage of your career, you know, they're not they're not out to get you. No, they they want to celebrate you. They want to celebrate themselves in the magazine. And, and that's why it turned out how it did. And I think it's also it's a, I think it's unexpected when he pops up at a place like that. And I think it it speaks to his commitment to to hip hop and to being a rapper that he that he still that he still does things like that. Yeah, well, it's really it's really what he cares about, which is a great segue into the next and and final part of what we're here to talk about, which is Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yep. So in the in the years leading up to this, in the past five or six years, we sort of had our eyes on 
when the time was going to come where Marsha was up for a nomination, right? And the way it works is it's 25 years from the release of your first album. And in, in this case, it was it was Marshall's first album was Infinite, right? So the 25 years had, had come and it was he was on the ballot and he was nominated you know, to be inducted for the first time on the ballot. So, you know, we did a couple other things with the Hall of Fame leading up to this. Marshall gave an induction speech for Run DMC when yeah. they were inducted. And I think that was 2019. Oh, man, was it? It seems like it was longer ago than that. I don't think it was much longer ago than that, but but it was around there. And then there was a 2021 Marshall performed with LL Cool J for, for his induction. So, you know, we had established the relationship. He had been on on their show before. And, you know, we we got the call that he was in. So, you know, leading up to it, there's two things that Marshall has to do or, you know, is expected to do. Right. One is perform and the other is to give a speech. Yeah. You know, if it was up to Marshall, he probably would have said, you know, hey, thanks. And held up his award on a little, you know, iPhone camera and said, thanks to everybody for (laughs) nominating me. Sorry, I couldn't be there tonight. But, you know, in all, in all seriousness, you know, not to disrespect it, no, the, the honor that it was. But, you know, for for Marshall at this point, you know, he's he, if he doesn't have to go out and, you know, do things that he doesn't necessarily have to do, he'd rather not. Right. Yeah, that so, was more about Marshall than it was about the Hall of Fame. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So so we, you know, just said, look, this is this is a great time for you to get out in front of people, get out in front of the audience and take your victory lap and get your roses, right? Yeah. That's that's what this is for. And you should, you know, participate in that. So he agreed. We decided to do it. Obviously, you know, put together the the performance. But where you come in and where I come in with you is the induction speech, right? Right. <laughs> so yeah. initially, you know, leading up to it, I'd say about three weeks out, you know, people start saying, well, what's his speech going to be? What's the speech going to be? What's the speech going to be? And, you know, there were there were some people that I don't know if they want to be mentioned, so I won't mention them that said, hey, you know, what about ri- hiring a writer? Right. Right. To help write the speech, which is, you know, presidents hire writers. They have speech writers on staff. And, you know, when people give important speeches, they get help with the speeches. So we said, all right, well, you know, we can try it because, you know, this is this is important. And. It, unlike anything he's really ever done before. So let's, you know, give it a shot. And maybe we maybe we will hire a writer. So reached out to one of the writers that had worked with us in the past and mm-hmm. done some stories with Marshall, Alan Light, who who's also on the air here at Sirius, and said, Hey Alan, you know, we're doing this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And would you mind speaking to Marshall and helping us, you know, conceptualize what his speech should be or could be yeah no problem right so we get on the phone and what happened from there well i felt like we always thought there were two ways the speech was going to go right and one is the giving giving a shout to everybody who's ever been in your life on the professional personal front to get you where you are today mm-hmm. and the other one is acknowledging the importance of of hip-hop and we kind of sat down. We we did a first pass of it. I think you know Marshall started to get his head around where he wanted it to go, 
who we wanted to talk about. And I, I think, you know, and I think you'll agree with me on this. As we got into the first draft of it, working off what Marshall said he wanted to say, it just didn't, it didn't feel like the kind of speech Eminem would give, right? It felt like the speech that maybe somebody would expect Eminem to give rather than a speech he would give if you gave him the mic, should give, but if you gave him a mic and said, what do you want to talk about tonight? You got, you got two minutes go. We know we didn't want to talk about. Yeah, exactly. So, so we, you know, we get sort of an outline of the speech back based on the conversation we had with, with Marshall and Alan and we look through it and just go, "Ah, you know, I, 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 this is going to sound like him reading a speech. Yep. And, and that's, it missed what, the, that's it, what I was worried about. I, I didn't want it to sound like Marshall's reading a speech that somebody else wrote. And it didn't sound like it was going to be his words. Right. And it, it didn't sound like something he was he would do. Alan did so, exactly what we needed him to do, but the speech itself just missed the mark for right. Yeah. Right. So when we talked to Marshall about it, he kept saying, I just don't like doing that. I don't feel comfortable doing that. It's not me. It's not what I'm about. And I don't want to do that. Right. Right. And then the other thing that I always had in my mind was, okay, if you start doing a list of thank yous and thanking people, inevitably you're going to leave people out. Yep. And that's always the danger. And it's one of the reasons we don't do thank yous on albums anymore, because it's a thing that you do that no matter what you do and how careful you are, somebody's going to be pissed off. Yeah. Right. So it's like a no good deed goes unpunished type of situation. So we stopped doing that. And I'm thinking about this speech and I'm like starting to get anxiety about like, who are we going to forget? Right? Yeah. So, so finally it dawns on me. All right. He doesn't want to talk about himself and we don't want to, we don't want to get too caught up in trying to make sure that we mention everybody that's ever helped in his career. So why don't we do something completely different? Let's not talk. Let's not have Marshall, talk about himself at all why don't you and we this is a conversation with marshall what do you think about instead of thanking the people who helped you directly why don't you talk about your influences why don't you talk about the artists that inspired you why don't you talk about make it about them and what they've done for you and thank them and that's it And then you won't have to worry about the rest of it. And you're talking about something that you do want to talk about, something that you're passionate about. And it doesn't have to be about the stuff that you don't want to talk about. No. And it's it's doing what he does every time he shows up somewhere with one of his T-shirts on. It's acknowledging the artist that created you. Right. So when you first approach him with this, because I've never asked you this. We never got to break this down. When you first approached him with the idea and when we first kind of give me like an over under on what you thought the number looked like on that that list. I thought that it was going to be long. I knew it was going to be a long list. I was expecting him to initially come in around 50, I guess. And he ended up coming in initially around 75. Yep. And that was three or four days prior to the event maybe a week prior and then he spent every day the next week adding to the list (laughs) and then everyone was trying to be like what about like no he's on the list (laughs) what about (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Everybody had had their own had their own people that they thought <laughs> should be at. And it was funny because he 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 couldn't remember all the names that were on the list and he had it written down and we would go someplace and he'd go, wait a minute. Did I put such such on the list? Right. Yes, you definitely yeah. had them on the list. Are you sure? <laughs> yes, you had them on the list. Okay. All right. Hey, what about this guy? Did it did I put yeah, and the, that went on for the next, you know, week or so. And it was fun for him because he, you know, he he loves that music so much and he loves that era of hip hop so much and it means so much to him that it meant something to him. And I think that's the most important part of this. He was mentally digging in the crates. And we should have actually made a t-shirt now that I think about it that just said they're on the list. Because that was just the answer by the end of the last night of rehearsal. Right. Yeah, and then it turned into, you know, Adam Graham of the Detroit News made his made, you know, a, a story about it and made his own list. And then Marshall made his own list that we put on Spotify. And, you know, it, it was just a great thing. And I think a lot of the artists that were mentioned and really appreciated it. And that's what it was really about. So I think it worked out great. And anybody who was expecting to get thanked that didn't get thanked, that was upset, you know, is in it for the wrong reasons anyway. He apologized. This was Marshall's moment, and he spent it how he wanted to spend it, and I think it was beautiful. And I, I, I thought it was it was wonderful, and it was exactly, exactly what the people who I would say it's exactly what the fans would expect him to do, and exactly what the general public probably didn't expect him to do, which is why it worked so well, because it, it shined a light on so many artists. And, and and to the point about Adam's piece, he did such an incredible job of finding artists, tracking them down, talking to them about it, them yeah. talking about what it meant to them and how they first found out they were on the list. It was really yeah. great. It, it was, it, you know, and the list spanned from, you know, very famous and, and, and obvious, like LL Cool J, to... You know, the more sort of for a lot of the world obscure artists like, you know, Merciless Amir, yep. who's, who's an artist from Detroit who had a a big local hit called The Day Without a Rhyme. And prior to the list being read and us deciding to put the playlist together, the song wasn't available on streaming services. And there was a few like that. And the, the folks at Spotify, they don't like it when music isn't available on their platform. So they made it their mission to go find the music and get it uploaded prior to us doing the playlist. So, so you know, a, a few of those songs that weren't on there that Marshall had on his list are now on and available on Spotify. And that's, that's awesome. It's, it's great. So anyway, that's what happened with the rock hall. And that's, that's what, you know, Dennis's involvement was in that. And I just thought it was a good idea to get together with Dennis today and, you know, wrap up and recap the year that we had as the year comes to an end. And, you know, it was a lot, right? It was really a lot. And when I go back and I look through my emails and even just through my Instagram, my Twitter feed, and I look at how many things we were talking about and how many things we were promoting and, you know, all the stuff that we put together from the Super Bowl to the, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to the, you know, Eight Mile Pop-Up to the anniversary of the, uh, anniversaries of the albums. It, it was just... It, it was tremendous. It, it, right? it really was. It was, it was in a weird way, right? The, accidentally the busiest year ever. <laughs> I mean, right. in quite some time, not the busiest year ever, but just because yeah. it's like all this stuff just kind of just, just. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't plan it this way. I think that, you know, everybody handled it well and, and found a way to make it all work and mesh together. Yep. And, you know, thanks to you for the part that you played. Oh, thanks, man. Through, 
this year and the years prior. Thanks Ladies to you. and gentlemen, <laughs> Dennis Dennehy on the Paul Pod. This is a bonus episode, episode 10. I know I keep saying we're done, but we find reasons to continue. So we may be back. We might not. You'll have to wait and see.